Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 82. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'm your host. And today we are talking about marine heritage in Dominica. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch, or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. And today we have Jonathan Rodriguez on the show. Jonathan Rodriguez is a third-year PhD student in the Applied Anthropology Program at the University of South Florida. He earned an MA in Latin American and Caribbean history and a BA in history with a minor in anthropology. He was recently awarded a Fulbright U.S. Student Research Grant to Dominica. His dissertation research is a community-based project that examines marinage in Dominica, fugitive geographies, settlement ecologies, and maroon heritage. Yeah, so welcome to the show, Jonathan. Super excited to have you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I also want to acknowledge where I'm residing right now. I'm at USF in Tampa, and we reside on the traditional homelands and territories of the Seminole, as well as other historical groups, including the Calusa and Tocobaga. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Okay. So before we do our usual start, looking at where you got started, Let's let's define some terms real quick, because I'm not sure all of our listeners will know about the Maroons and who they were. So if you could just give like a super brief intro into that topic, that would be awesome. Yeah, so Marinage existed in the Western Hemisphere anywhere there was really slavery. Marinage is a form of resistance where enslaved people would flee from slavery temporarily or for as long as they could. And scholars have usually broken this down into Grand Marinage, which is fleeing from slavery to set up autonomous sovereign communities, or Petite Marinage, which is temporarily fleeing slavery, sometimes to go see relatives, but they would eventually return back to the plantations or wherever they were being enslaved. Wow. I mean, that seems that seems very risky. The second one. <laughs> I mean, yes. Um, yes. Most of the time in the case of Petite Marinage, it was usually because of like excessive labor or like the violence that they were experiencing from their enslavers. Mm-hmm. And Grand Marinage, sometimes an individual or as groups, and especially it would happen a lot during times of war. So these different colonial imperial wars that happened in the Caribbean, the U.S., even in South America, Maroons were pretty much everywhere and a real thorn in the side to the plantation slavery system. Yeah. Okay. Well, just wanted to make sure everyone had that off the top and then, but let's, let's go back to your story. So how did, how did you get interested in this work? So During my master's program, I originally wanted to study like the geopolitics of Cuba, the USSR, and the US during like the Cold War. Uh, Mm -hmm. I was really interested in Cuba at the time. And my advisor, she actually geared, she was a colonial historian of Mexico. And she kind of pointed me to some of these anti-slavery and anti-colonial uprisings that were happening in the Caribbean, specifically 19th century Cuba. And that really opened my eyes into different types of anti-slavery resistance. Specifically, there's a rebellion, the 1812 Aponte Rebellion. And I read this great book by Matt Childs that covers that subject, as well as Ida Ferrer. There are two very well-known scholars of Cuba. So that kind of interested me into anti-slavery resistance. 
And then when I got into the PhD program, I initially wanted to study Marinage in Haiti or colonial Saint-Domingue. But to do that, I would have had to build rapport, go to the island, like set up all my own projects, really. And my advisor, Dr. Diane Wallman, she had an ongoing project in Dominica. So like I entered the program knowing a lot more about the Spanish speaking Caribbean and didn't know much about like the Anglophone Caribbean. But I, and, and this is just sidebar kind of advice for any listeners out there that are thinking about going to grad school. Just if there's an opportunity on the table, listen to your advisor and just follow that path. So I listened to her. I started reading more about Dominica and I found out that there was Maroons on that island and that none of the Maroon settlements had been studied archaeologically. So that's kind of how I got interested in studying Dominica, studying Maroon heritage there. Hmm. It sounds like you had a little bit of an uh, academic journey through different disciplines, which, you know, from my perspective is a good thing. But what what brought you ultimately to anthropology? I guess even before that, Mm -hmm. like when when did you start, like maybe even before school, thinking about this kind of work in general? Right. Yeah, I kind of have an interesting background into getting into this work. But from an early age, I was always kind of interested in history. I was always either reading historical fiction or any kind of history books. But I I, I was like that kid who's always interested in like World War II history. Uh-huh. So I read I read a lot about that. And then I traveled a lot as a kid. I'm from I'm from New York, where I was born. And my dad ended up getting MS. So he had to move. We we moved the family to, from New York to Florida. And then eventually my parents split up. My dad remarried a woman in South Dakota. And then I moved to South Dakota, hmm. which was a huge cultural shock. <laughs> uh, it, I went from like a school or like a town of, you know, maybe 300,000 people in Florida to going to a very rural small town in South Dakota with a population of like 880, where me my brother and my dad were the only Puerto Ricans in sight. So there, I eventually went to a different USF, University of Sioux Falls. And while I was there, I majored in history, but I didn't have the funding to go to school. I was taking out student loans and I ended up joining the military. So I was in the army for six years. And while I was in the army, that's where I really learned that like I was not really familiar anymore with like my Puerto Rican culture because there's a lot of Puerto Ricans in the military and like I am one of those no sabo kids I I didn't speak Spanish so I was kind of detached from my own heritage even though growing up in New York it was like every Easter we were going down to Puerto Rico and like really visiting the island visiting my grandparents but I hadn't gone since my parents had really split up And then I did two tours in Afghanistan. And on on the first deployment, I was part of a counter IED platoon. And my job was, I was trained in tactical site exploitation as well as evidence collection. So basically we would patrol the main highway in Afghanistan. And anytime we found an IED or if an IED went off, my job was to basically record the site. Like I had to collect all the materials from the Mm. device that was blown up, take photographs, bag and collect the evidence, that sort of thing. I didn't know it was going to have any kind of benefit long-term as far as archeology, span but while I was there being around a different culture and 
you know, seeing those things, it kind of opened my eyes to being a part of history. And then when I eventually got out of the military, I went to USF and um, I think I was originally like a business major, but I had to take an ancient history class. And I was just like, this is I, I was back in my element. I was like, OK, this is great. But I still hadn't even really heard of archaeology up to that point. Like I really didn't. And from that class, I switched my major back to history. And because I had prior courses in history, I was pretty much almost done with my degree. But to get the full benefits of the GI Bill, I had to take more courses. So I minored in anthropology. And then it was my last semester of my bachelor's degree. I had to take an archaeological field methods class and being outside being part of a team it kind of was a good thing for me but i had already been accepted into a grad program for history so while i was in the grad program i started working for a local crm firm here in tampa called janice research and i was like oh i could work and get paid to do archaeology like this is great and while i was in the program i took electives in caribbean archaeology and historical archaeology and once i found out there was a subfield called historical archaeology i was like this is this is my niche this is what i want to do so long story short that's basically how i got into this and then that plus my advisor kind of shifting my focus to anti-slavery resistance in colonial Cuba, I was, that's what kind of brought me into that. But being trained as a historian, I was learning more about how the voices of enslaved people aren't necessarily in the archives. So a way to counter that is through artifacts, is through other methods. So that's what geared me towards, okay, I want to apply to a PhD program in anthropology and focus on historical archaeology. Mm -hmm. Okay, so obviously I want to come back to all of that. But before we get too far away from it, I'm, I'm curious, you know, thinking about your experience with the Army, first, like if that affected the way that you think about anthropology in any way, and then also if anthropology affected the way you think about your army experience in any way? I would say both. At the time, on, on my first deployment, I probably was very supportive of what we were doing over there. When I went back in 2014 and I saw that not much had changed, I started having these questions of like, is, is this good, what we're doing over here? And then once I got into reading more, reading was like probably the biggest influence. My brother recommended Howard Zinn's People's History of the mm -hmm. United States and reading through that, then getting into this program and meeting, reading more histories about colonialism, imperialism and, and slavery. I started to look back on my time in the military and the occupation of Afghanistan as like not a good thing. And I kind of wanted to correct that by, you know, doing this type of work and being more of an activist scholar versus just being a scholar, not really concerned about what's going on in our current day and age. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it, it definitely changed how I, viewed the past as well as the present. Mm -hmm. And I imagine like the reverse was true, like in the sense of, for example, you were talking about kind of mapping a site and getting that experience in your time in the army. And, and did that affect the way that you do your work at all? Yeah. I mean, that, that is one of the, the highlights for my time that, that kind of experience it wasn't all bad learning how to be a mentor, learning how to set goals mm -hmm. and 
achieve them. Like those types of skills I didn't really have early on in my life, even though, you know, I, I, I love my parents to death, but my dad was very sick. So I didn't really have that kind of structure growing up. So those types of things did help. And especially the tactical site exploitation, as well as the evidence collection courses I took helps with having that paying attention to detail that you need when doing archaeology. So yeah, those types of skills were definitely transferable once I got into archaeology. It was more of the theoretical and Mm -hmm. philosophical Mm -hmm. things that I had learned through reading that I was not getting (laughs) in the military. Yeah. Right. Right. All right. Well, we're already at our first break point, but when we come back, let's let's dive back into your graduate school work. So everybody, we will be back here in a moment. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay. So jumping back in, before I, I briefly detoured us to talk about your how your military service and anthropology experiences influenced each other, you were starting to talk about what you wanted to look at in grad school. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So once I got into the PhD program and I shifted my focus to Dominica, my advisor told me about the Fulbright program. And we were able to go down my first year in the program. I joined her on the project that she has going on with the archaeological survey of Colonial Dominica, where she's one of the PIs along with Dr. Mark Hauser from Northwestern. And they basically were working on a indigenous contact site. So within the Caribbean There's the Kalanago, which are indigenous to the island of Dominica. And they had found like a trading outpost on the beach. And one of our local collaborators, Dr. Lennox Honeychurch, he's a native to Dominica. And he actually has wrote a couple books on maroons in Dominica. After Hurricane Maria, he had found like some surface scatter pottery at this location. So they had been going down there and doing excavation. So I joined them two summers ago. And while I was down there, we were able to make contact with Dr. Shiler is free. And she is the founder and director of create Caribbean research Institute, which is a digital humanities research Institute that focuses on providing different resources for students and the public on the history of Dominica, as well as training interns on different digital humanities research topics. So the 
other good thing about Dr. Esprit is she is a descendant of Maroons and her family are proprietors of one of the most well-known Maroon camps, Maroon sites in Dominica, the Chief Jacko camp. So on my first visit to Dominica, I met with her and her father and we actually got to do a pedestrian survey of the maroon camp the chief jacko camp so that was super cool and when i got back from dominica i started the fulbright process to apply to work with dr esprit for my fulbright and what what were they hoping for out of out of this fulbright that you put in for this community so the first thing was they were really interested in an ecology kind of based research. They kind of wanted to understand why they decided to settle in those areas, different like farming techniques and stuff like that. The region where it's at in Dominica is in the interior. It's located near this village called Bells. And there's a lot of subsistence farming that goes on in that area. And because of climate change and the natural disasters on that island, like they wanted me to kind of focus my research on those types of questions. And another kind of benefit that I could bring to them was I, during my master's program, I interned at the Institute of Digital Exploration here at USF, where we were trained on different digital technologies and tools to create 3D models of cultural heritage objects and do that type of research. So I'm, I've been trained in digital photogrammetry, terrestrial laser scanning, GIS, those types of things. So the goal here is for me to work with the interns, students, and any interested members of the public to train them in digital photogrammetry, GIS. I plan on getting one of the scholars at USF to possibly fly down and do a laser scanning of the landscape at Chief Jacko Camp to create a 3D model. Hmm. So all those aspects are the focus of the Fulbright. So can you can you talk a little bit more about like how you'll be applying those technologies? Yeah, so we'll be working with uh, Lennox Honey Church again. He has a collection of artifacts that we're hoping to do some digital photogrammetry with to create 3D models. We have an oral history aspect of the project where we will be collecting oral histories and traditions from descendants of maroons on the island mm, wow so that that's the game plan as of right now well man after my own heart <laughs> <laughs> you know being a cultural anthropologist and all i love me some good oral histories <laughs> yeah well i was kind of influenced by work done by richard price with maroons in suriname and then also kenneth bilby who did a similar oral history type project with Maroons in Jamaica. And the goal is to try and uplift their voices that are silenced in colonial archives, because most mm -hmm. of the historical research that has been done on Maroons in Dominica, they're using the archives in London, mainly, and some of the archives that are in Dominica to shed light on the Maroons, the Maroon history. So my goal is to focus on the people and try and get their version of history and kind of center their voices and perspectives. Mm. Yeah. And naturally, I'm going to nerd out here for a second, but do you have like a, I mean, I don't know if you've talked to the community about this yet or the descendants about this yet, but like what they might want to see done with those oral histories? So it's going to be part of Create Caribbean. So I've only talked to Dr. Esprit about this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Shiler actually got funding from Wenner Gren 
to do an oral history project. So last time I met with her this past summer, I, I brought up the idea of like collecting these oral histories and she was like, this is a great idea. Like we want to do something like this. So it's going to be part of that project, their oral history project, but there'll probably be a segment that's specific on maroon descendants. Mm -hmm. hmm. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the part that I look forward to the most, honestly, is just going out there and talking with the community. That's, been heavily focused in our curriculum here at USF is doing community-based research. And even though like for your proposal, you have to come up with research questions and that sort of thing, really over the 10 months that I'll be down there in Dominique, I'm hoping to get more community involvement in the mm -hmm. research design and mm -hmm. planning and, and gear my research questions to what the community wants to know. Yeah, I love a good iterative approach. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Throwing in my jargon word of the day. <laughs> yeah, that's that's awesome. So, okay, thinking about the work that that you've already done that you were already part of there on the site. You know, you mentioned like doing some ground surveying there. Mm -hmm. What did you learn from the work that you've done so far? And how are you, how is that like making you think differently about the work that you're going to be doing? So the reason why I'm very interested in the Chief Jacko camp is we kind of know that this was the location of it based on there are extant stepping stones leading to the camp that were chiseled into the rock of the cliffside. And they're incredible. Originally, they were about three feet high. And to climb them, it would, I, 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 right now they've been kind of modified to where it, they're easier to walk up. Not super easy, but easier. It's over a hundred steps that you have to take to go up, but it was part of their defensive measures. So originally when they were three feet tall, it would cause any kind of British military offensive or troops, they would have to sling their weapon on their back and really mm. climb these, these stones. And towards the end, there's actually like a funneling in a trench wall sort of, and the Maroons would post sentries up at the top mm -hmm. to watch any kind of approach. And while I was there, Shiler's father, Martin, was our guide. And he's actually a hunter that hunts in this central forest reserve where it's located. So he's super knowledgeable about the ecology, the landscape. So he was giving us details about like which plants would be used to create settlements like that thatched roofs, different types of trees that were used for canoe building, which the Maroons were known to travel from Dominica to Martinique and Guadeloupe, which are nearby French islands. So the, the one good thing about going there the first time was opening my eye to the knowledge of some of the locals that know the terrain, they know the different species of plants, that sort of thing. When I went there, I brought my GPS and I recorded points of interest and the location of the camp. And then the second time I was there, people kept telling me about Lake Cachibona, which is northeast of a, a coastal town called Kalihope. And that's the location where they think another Maroon chief, Farcel, his camp was supposedly located. So I went and did that hike with the same methods. This time I brought a drone to try and create a 3D model of the landscape. And that hike was brutal. It was, it was super, <laughs> you have to like, there, there's rope on the trail to actually like climb up. So doing archaeology up there would be extremely challenging. So that's why I've kind of just focused on doing it at the Chief Jacko camp because it was actually one of the easier hikes I've done in Dominica. But basically with those with the GPS data 
I came back home and decided to do spatial analysis on GIS, which included doing visibility analysis and least cost path analysis. So in short, what that means is I wanted to see how much of the landscape was visible from the locations of these camps and how many camps were intervisible, like they could see each other. And then since I knew the Chief Jacko camp's location, I created least cost path is basically the route that could possibly be taken from one point to another point, and you can create barriers or costs. So the costs for this analysis was the elevation of the landscape using a digital elevation model, as well as rivers. There's over 365 river networks in Dominica. So the cost to cross a river as well as crossing elevated areas. So that was part of my initial like preliminary research to get a better idea of some of the settlement patterns. And my goal is over the 10 months of going there, I've talked to Shiler and she said one of the things they would do growing up is visit these different maroon camps. She she mentioned mm-hmm. over 20 that they would wow. just go and part of a tradition that they did. So my aim is to visit as many as possible to get GPS data and then do a GIS-based study that focuses on settlement location choice, which is grounded in settlement ecology theory and understanding the different environmental and socio-cultural variables that went into their decision-making process. That was a lot. (laughs) (laughs) No, that is a lot, but it's super interesting and like, ah, super cool. But yeah, like I always think least cost, wait, least cost path, right? Analysis is always kind of interesting. I think just because like from an ethnographic side, people don't obviously always make decisions I mean, like Americans tend to (laughs) make decisions based on what's easiest, but like, you know, like thinking of like indigenous pilgrimage trails or or things like that, that like sometimes the hardness is kind of the point that you have Mm -hmm. to like earn it. And then thinking about like what you're talking about, maybe the least cost would be bad in a different way. Like if we're talking about people that are escaping slavery, you know, like obviously in a lot of ways, maybe you'd want it to be a hard path if if you're worried about, you know, people coming after you or your community or, or things like that. Has Have you looked at that at all? Like, have you looked at, I mean, it sounds like from what you're saying, like that the elevation was like a purposeful choice. So like, I don't know, I'm just curious about what you're, you're thinking or finding so far with that, like least cost. Yeah. So like mm-hmm. one thing about Dominica is the topography is very mountainous. Mm -hmm. So the mostly in the interior of the island, it's very rugged, very mountainous. And most of the plantations during the British colonial period from 1763 to 1834, they were along the coast, the coastal zones. Mm -hmm. And when I did this initial analysis, I even made a caveat like these are imagined routes you know we don't have other barriers such as vegetation colonial settlements military defenses those types of things that have also been avoided so you know it's that that initial gis study doesn't account for those things but since then i've found ways of creating new gis data that's that's another issue with trying to do this without being in Dominica is there's no GIS repository that has the types of data that I need to do that study. But since then, I've been able to, for instance, there was a map from that of a survey done by John Byers in 1776 that I was able to geo-reference and I was able to add colonial roads, different military defenses for the British colonial military. So I've added those to my GIS data to rerun the same type of analysis to get better results. 
So I haven't redone a least cost path with those, but I have started to do preliminary research to find out, for instance, I, I redid a view shed where I still had the visibility of the maroon camps. And then I had visibility from the British colonial outposts, which are all along the coastline. And the field of view for the maroon camps is much larger than the field of view for the British colonial outposts. So Mm -hmm. in my sense, I read that as them strategically positioning themselves, the maroons, in locations where they have eyes on possible movements by the British military as a defensive measure. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm I'm still adding more data to the GIS analysis, but I'm looking at different, like I said, different environmental and sociocultural variables to kind of point to their decision-making on where to settle. Yeah. And even, even the maroon camp. So I have two where I know there was maroon sites there, the chief Farcell camp and the chief Jacko camp. But the other eight that I have, that was all based off of place names that are mentioned in Lennox Honeychurch's book, The Fighting Maroons of Dominica. It was published in 2017. He has a map on on there, as well as kind of throughout the text, details of where the locations of camps were. So like the spatial accuracy of where these camps are located haven't been ground truth through archaeology per se, but the place names still exist. So I was able to create points for seven other maroon camps based off of place names and creating a point in that location. Yeah, it seems like you could spend a lifetime on this alone. (laughs) There's so much good stuff to explore, but we are sadly at our second break point. So we will be back here in a second. Okay, so we're back from our break. And I know you were talking about um, some of the different GIS analysis. And um, we were just talking during the break. And it sounds like for anyone that's interested in learning more, because like we talked about, there's a lot more that could be said on this topic, that it sounds like you're going to have an article coming out next year. Can you tell me a little bit more about what's going to be in there? Uh, Yeah, so We have a special issue coming out with American Antiquity, and that will be from that preliminary research of the visibility and accessibility analysis I did with GIS. And in the article, I talk about the visibility from the camps and as well as line of sight between camps and then the possible routes between each camp that they would have taken. Cool. All right. Well, I'm excited to read it when it comes out. And I'm going to shift topic slightly, but kind of stay on the same topic for a little bit longer. This is something that you mentioned already a little bit. And then you and I talked about even a little bit more before we started. And I, I'd really, I'm really curious. I'd really love to hear more about the maritime maroons. So can you tell us what you mean by that and yeah, more about what that means? Yeah. So even prior to the British colonizing Dominica in 1763, after the Seven Years' War, Dominica was kind of a refuge for indigenous peoples fleeing Spanish colonization in the Greater Antilles. And they would travel by canoe to Dominica. And then later on, after British colonization, there was still these maritime networks between the different Caribbean islands and Dominica. So I was first put onto this reading the work done by Dr. Justin Donovant. And he had an article where he did geospatial analysis from St. Croix in the Virgin Islands. And their possible routes of travel landing in Puerto Rico. And in one of the articles that he published, he did mention people from St. Croix going to Dominica, which 
sparked my curiosity. And then reading more into the work of Dr. Honeychurch, as well as Dr. Neil Vaz, they mentioned maritime maroon networks in Dominica and how the maroons would travel to the nearby French islands of Martinique and Guadeloupe. So then I became kind of interested in connecting the land with the sea. And then from my experiences with our guides that had taken us to the two different maroon camps, Chief Farcel and Chief Jacko, we noticed that there was a lot of these, they're, they're called gobier, they're a type of tree where they would uh, create canoes out of these trees. And at both camps, there were these massive trees that could be used to create canoes. And there, there was other resources that they could use these trees for, for example, incense as fuel for fires. So I kind of wanted to connect, and it might be out of the scope of my dissertation research, but for future research, trying to do a similar study that Justin Dunavant did to try and map out these maritime maroon networks from Dominica to other islands or from other islands to Dominica. Yeah. And okay, so we're talking about future work now. So do you have a vision? I mean, like I said, there's already a lot that you could do with with what you're working on. But do you have a vision for, you know, other future research that you'd like to do? So I'm hoping after I finish my work in Dominica to try and recreate a similar study in Puerto Rico, where my family from and the archaeology of Marinage in Puerto Rico is not at the same level as either pre-Columbian archaeology or, you know, the contact period. So I'm hoping that once I finish my dissertation, I can then kind of use those same skills to study marinage in Puerto Rico. Hmm. So just in, in what you've seen so far, obviously you haven't gotten to do the work in, in Puerto Rico yet, but have you seen major differences between Dominica and and Puerto Rico? Yeah, I, I mean, I haven't noticed many differences because I haven't really researched enough. But mm-hmm. one of the things that Justin Donovan did was he went to Puerto Rico to the municipality of Luisa, which has mm-hmm. a very high Afro-descendant population and the the actual town was created by you know formerly enslaved people that had escaped slavery so you know i i there there is evidence there it's just there hasn't been as much archaeological research done on the topic Which just blows my mind because it's a super interesting topic. Like, I just, yeah. I don't, I don't understand how, um, cause I, I think you in, I think it was in the Fulbright article that you sent me, which we'll put in the show notes as well, that you, this will be the first, what was it? First archeology? span No, I guess. Investigation? Well, yeah, yeah, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was. This is I'm doing a terrible job of Yeah, no, no. <laughs> just you're, this, but. you're right. Like it will be the first archaeological investigation. And some of that has to do with the Maroons tried their hardest to remain hidden. And mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. they the, the kind of nickname for Maroon archaeology is like the archaeology of absence mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there's not that many material cultural remains at some of these sites. Mm -hmm. But I think having a multifaceted kind of research design where we're including oral histories, we're including the archaeology at Chief Jacko's site, we're also doing spatial analysis of the settlement patterns. I think you can at least have the groundwork there to further investigate some of these sites mm-hmm. and some are more hard to reach. Like I said, the chief Jack, the chief Jacko site is a lot easier to get to versus the 
chief far cell site. Mm-hmm. So that's another aspect of it. But it's not that it can't be done. Um, like the work of Dr. Cheryl White, her dissertation research was in Suriname studying maroons. And she was out there camping for like a week. And the her maroon guys, they were like hunting for their food. It's, it's an incredible story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it can be done. It's more of just like, are you willing to go to the next level to get it done? <laughs> Yeah. And so I'm curious um, with you working on this topic, um, which is like you said, it's it's a less explored topic in a lot of ways, especially in archaeology. What what is what is something or a couple of things that you really wish people knew about this topic? I think first is that there were maroons, not only in Dominica, but throughout the Western Hemisphere, wherever slavery existed. It's just some of the bigger maroon settlements in Brazil and Jamaica and Cuba and Suriname, they've kind of gotten the most focus. So there are other instances of marinage, especially in the Eastern Caribbean that have now begun people are starting to talk about and study. And it's not like people obviously on the island we're talking about. It's more of like, I guess, U.S. scholars are just in academia starting to research. Yeah, it's it's a very understudied topic in archaeology, especially in the Eastern Caribbean. And I'm hoping with my research that we can center the perspectives of Maroons and Maroon descendants and then begin to do more comparative analysis of Maroons in Dominica and the Lesser Antilles with some of the more well-known sites throughout the Americas. And other than, I suppose, it getting studied more, is there anything else? And and like you said, including more of the, the voices of the descendants, is there anything else that you'd like to see change like within this type of work? So I think one way this could really benefit Maroon descendants in Dominica, as well as the Americas, is they've been trying to get legally recognized by the UN Mm. as indigenous to the land and to get the rights for their lands. There's a movement, the Maroon Heritage Movement, and I can give you a link to an article about it, but they've been collectively organizing Maroon descendants throughout the Americas to get this recognition from the UN. And I'm hoping that my research could be useful in that aspect. Mm. Mm. So, like, I'm just curious if, if you know, in fighting to be considered indigenous, whether there's been any friction at all with like other indigenous communities in this, this effort. I don't know per se. I know that there are, I guess, political f- tensions between mm. the Colonago and African descended population in Dominica. Mm -hmm. Another thing I'm kind of hoping the archaeological investigation of Chief Jacko Camp can shed light on is Mm -hmm. possible networks and connections between the enslaved population as well as the indigenous Colonago on the island during that Mm -hmm. time period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'd be super interesting. Because in Lennox's work, he talks about there being that connection and collaboration between the indigenous Colonago and the first enslaved Africans to flee to Dominica. But Mm -hmm. then it kind of dissipates once we get to the British colonial period. So I'm hoping that my research can kind of shed light on that. And then we can kind of come together (laughs) towards this indigenous sovereignty issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And I will say, I I said it was the Maroon Heritage Movement. It's the Maroon Gathering Movement. Maroon Gathering. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, we are, we're at the end of our time. Any last thoughts that you want to share with everyone? I'm just super thankful to, you know, 
be here and have this conversation with you. And, you know, hopefully this can bring some more awareness to Maroons in Dominica and their heritage and history. And yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm super excited uh, for your Fulbright. I'm excited to hear how it goes. And, you know, maybe someday you and your partners in the the Maroon community and the descendants, I should say, in Dominica, you know, could could come on again and and we can talk about what you found and and what they already know and what you're learning and could be could be a really interesting future episode. So putting that bug in your ear. Yeah, um, that would be great. Yeah. So thank you again for for taking so much time. And yeah, I'm really interested to hear more in the future. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash heritagevoices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, please share with your friends or write us a review. Sharing and reviewing helps more people find the show and gets the perspectives of Heritage Voices' amazing guests out there into the world. Don't we just need more of that in anthropology and land management? If you have any more questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org If you'd like to volunteer to be on the show as a guest or even a co-host, reach out to me as well, Jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org You can also follow more of what I'm doing on Facebook at Living Heritage Anthropology and the nonprofit Living Heritage Research Council or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, huge thank you to Lyle Belenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.